In today's Godpod, we have a special guest, Joanna Collicutt-McGrath from Heathrop College, part of London University. And we're looking at the question of Richard Dawkins' book, The God Delusion, whether Christians should read that and how we respond to it. And we're also looking at the question of generational sin. Can sin be handed down from one generation to another? Does it affect us from the past? Welcome to Godpod. This is a podcast from St. Paul's Theological Centre in London, based at Holy Trinity Brompton. Mike Lloyd and Jane Williams join me, Graham Tomlin, in talking about theology, life, God, and just about everything else. Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to Godpod number 20. And uh, this morning, um, I'm afraid, very sadly, we don't have Jane with us, but we do have Mike. Right, there's no substitute really, but hello. I'm afraid not. Uh, but we also have a very uh, special guest as well, who is um, Joanna Collicott-McGrath. Hello. Hello, Joanna. Very good to see you. Um, Joanna, um, for those few of you who don't know who she is, is um, a clinical psychologist by background. She's a lecturer in uh, psychology of religion at Heathrop College uh, here in London. Um, she is uh, ordained as an Anglican um, curate, mm-hmm. that's right, in Whitney, in yeah. Oxfordshire. And um, has taught theology and uh, psychology in Oxford and in London and various other places. And uh, she's also married to Alistair McGrath, who was on our God Pod quite some while ago. So, uh, John, it's great to um, have you here. You've been teaching at Heathrop for a little while now? About six months, yeah. Six Not months. Very long. Yeah, okay. So you divide your life between Oxford and I London. I do. I have a very split life. I have... Longish weekends in Oxford when I'm a curate and yeah, yeah, yeah. intense weeks in London when I'm a lecturer, yeah. Because Graham and I have divided our lives uh, between London and Oxford as well in some ways, but um, but not con- concurrently, only no, consecutively. Sad. But they are very nice places to be, they? are both they, very really? nice places. Exactly. Well, um, our first question for today, we are looking at one from... Uh, Michael, Tim. Tim has uh, written in and sent this question. He says, um, here's my question, and I'm not sure it's really theology, but I'm asking anyway. Should I read Dawkins' new book? Well, the larger part of me wants to read it, and, and uh, but to be honest, there's a bit of me that's worried that I'd get sucked in by it. So there's a, there's a question. If you're a, um, a Christian, should you read this book? And uh, it's very good we've got Joanna here this morning, because actually Joanna, with... Uh, her husband, Alistair, has been writing a, a response to Richard Dawkins' book. Uh, Richard Dawkins' book is, of course, called The God Delusion. Um, it was a huge bestseller over Christmas. Um, and uh, Alistair and Joanna's book is out uh, when? February? February the 7th. February the 7th. And it is called The Dawkins Delusion. Mm-hmm. And it's published Question by... Question mark. Question mark, that's right. Published <laughs> by who? Published by... SPCK. SPCK. Of course, Watson, I think it was Watson's, wasn't it, who's... Uh, Advertise the God Delusion as an ideal Christmas present. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> <laughs> it was a bit deeply bizarre. ironic, isn't it? <laughs> That's right, exactly. So, well, there's the first question. Do you think people should read this book, or should they avoid it? I mean, Christians, you might be in Tim's position, thinking, well, you know, maybe I should read it, but maybe it might shake my faith a bit. It sounded like he wanted to read it rather than thought he should read it. So, yeah. I, I would tend to go with wanted to read it. I, I yeah. think if you want to do it, then you have to think what is there that would argue against me doing it, which is the question he's asking, yeah. really. Um, I, I think, in general, we don't have to be frightened of of the truth. Um, and I suppose the question he's kind of asking is, would he be sucked into some kind of lie if he were to read The God Delusion? Um, 
So I think people perhaps, if they're a bit scared, needs need support. They need, you know, that's yeah. a, it's an appropriate question for him to have asked, really. You know, uh, and but, but perhaps a better question would not be so much should or shouldn't I read it, but if I read it and it's causing me problems, is there someone I can talk sure. to yeah. to talk these problems through? Yeah. I think just avoiding. Um, these kind of issues is not a good thing for Christians to do. And also because sooner or later you're bound to come across someone who has read The God Delusion and you get into conversation with them and they say, oh, I've read this book recently that says this, this and this and if you've not read it and not encountered the ideas at all then it's quite hard to to, to answer those, isn't it? Yeah. And you're not going to be immune from those uh, possible dangers of reading the thing anyway. Sure. You'll get the same questions asked secondhand by people who've read it. Yeah. Uh, so you can't avoid them, really. They're in the air, aren't they? But the real like answer to the question is, yes, go ahead and read The God Delusion, but also read Alistair and Joanna's book, The Tolkien's <laughs> Delusion, at the same time. Well, I, th I think, I mean, there is something in that. We've, we, Alistair very consciously went with a Christian publishing house to publish mm. this book because it's written, it's written for the general public, but it's aimed at Christians who may be struggling when they read that mm. or they hear about that mm. kind of literature to make some kind of sense so it's meant to be it's written actually as quite a piece it's a piece of polemic in many ways mm. because if you do read the god delusion it does tend to make wind you up mm. um <laughs> and, it, and it has that kind of tone to it but it's it's full of uh, arguments and and uh, um, pieces of information that ought to help people um work their way through the god delusion in a way that would make them feel perhaps a little bit more secure mm. than just reading it on their own and there's also a sense in which i think Books like The God Delusion are slightly written to bolster atheists in their own faith mm. in quite the same same way. And it strikes me that a lot of Richard Dawkins' arguments are are designed to, to, to enable atheists to read and think, yes, yes, I agree with that, that's great, that really helps me in my atheist um, belief, as it were, in the same way that, that we do as mm. as Christians. And, and, and I don't think we need to be embarrassed about the fact that as Christians we might sometimes read things to, to, to help strengthen our faith, and, and since everyone does that. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, do you want to tell us a little bit about how you came to um, decide to write this book and uh, how it emerged and all of that? Well, as people may well know, Alistair wrote a book um, about two years ago, I think, called Dawkins' God. So he was already um, very aware of Richard Dawkins' work. And it was a, a, a kind of summary of Dawkins' position over the years um, as uh, on biology and on God. Um, and so it, he was already, in a sense, very familiar with what the sort of stuff Dawkins was turning out. And I think one of the trends that he'd noticed in, in Dawkins' writing is that it had moved from popular science, which was very firmly based in good empirical work, um, but was getting more and more outlandish in its claims for what science could bring under its remit, and more extremely atheist in, in, in its view. Um, but when this last book, The God Delusion, came out, that seemed to be the most extreme book of all. Mm. So it caused a reaction almost immediately, and I think he felt he needed to respond. Um, and the reason that I got involved is that the title of the book includes the word delusion, and delusion is a psychological concept. So immediately, mm. um, that made me interested. Uh, and the other reason that I became involved, as I mentioned just before we came on air, was that Dawkins is quite rude about Jesus in his book, The God Delusion, and that kind of pressed my buttons and I wanted to <laughs> jump on board the bandwagon. Because okay. in the programme, the programmes he did, he, Jesus was the only one who got off reasonably lightly, didn't yes. he? Um, it was every, all the Old, Old Testament and then the early church, but Jesus himself was, was kind of okay. But you think he's 
now kind of gone further than that. He's, I mean, he's, he's ambivalent in the book. He, he talks about liking Jesus and getting a, um, an Atheist for Jesus t-shirt and, and <laughs> treating it with um, great affection. But then he does go on then in, in a very amateurish kind of way to rubbish Jesus. I mean, he starts off by saying, well, if he existed, uh, but then jumps to the assumption that, well, if he did exist, look at all these things about him that actually we don't like, don't make Jesus an unattractive kind of figure. Mm. Um, mm. And unjustified kind of stuff, really. Mm. And, uh, and as, a, as a psychologist reading the book and, and reading some of Dawkins' argument, especially the, you know, the, this argument that religion is essentially a, some sort of delusion, a, a, a biological or a psychological um, virus that, that, that attacks people and um, spreads through uh, these, these various means... Um, how, how do you respond to that? I mean, what were your what were your thoughts as you read the book, from a psychological point of view? There is very little psychology in it. So, although he actually talks about delusion, which is a psychological concept, he doesn't he doesn't really invoke any mainstream mm. psychological thinking to bolster up his point. Um, so, I mean, one of the issues he talks about is is religion a wish fulfilment, mm. um, which is an old kind of argument about where religion comes from. Do we believe in God? Because we need, we have a need for a kind of father figure or something. Mm. But actually he doesn't engage with the literature on that in psychology. Psychology just quotes a couple of lines from William Shakespeare mm. and just says, I've made my point and then kind of moves on. Mm. So uh, uh, quite often he will present things as if they were self-evident when actually there is a literature uh, yeah. that debates the point. Um, I mean, I, th I, you know, one of my interests is how we marry psychological accounts of belief and, and, and why human beings do things with theological accounts. And I think they're not incompatible. In fact, mm. I think they feed each other. Um, and that's a sort of smaller version of the, the debate about how science and religion feed each other. Um, and I guess my kind of irritated response to what Dawkins is doing is that he assumes that if you can give a psychological or a biological account of religion, mm. that somehow that discredits it, mm. means it's not true, and um, it's the case. He seems incapable of allowing for different layers of interpretation, doesn't he? Yes. And actually, nearly every event is capable of different layers of interpretation because we are multi-layered beings. Um, you know, if I... I'm eating an ice cream, and you, or, or indeed these bis these biscuits here, and you say, "Why are you eating these biscuits?" I could say, uh, "Because I'm hungry." I could say, "Because I'm greedy." I could say, uh, "Because there's a special nice. offer on at uh, mm. uh, Sainsbury's for ginger biscuits." Um, the, uh, and just because one of those levels is true doesn't mean that the others mm. are not true. Mm. Absolutely. Um, just because I am greedy doesn't mean that I'm not hungry, mm. um, and that's what he seems incapable of. Of handling is actually more than one level of, and that's, I think that's why we talk about atheist fundamentalism in our book because I think that's a mark of a fundamentalist mindset that you have one way of explaining the world and all others are then excluded by that mm. that, that way. Uh, and and of course there are Christian fundamentalists who who do view it the other way around and, and play into his hands in that yes. way. Yeah, um, and who think that the, because God created the world, therefore there is no other possible explanation. Yes, and mm. the scientific one is ruled out of court. Yes. Um, so they mirror each other almost completely. There's yes. a sort of symmetry there. Okay, going back to the idea of delusion, I mean, uh, what, what, I mean for, a, for a psychologist, what is delusion? How would you describe Well, a delusion that? would be a belief, and it would probably be quite an elaborately worked out belief that is not supported by mm. evidence. Mm. Um, but isn't that what Dawkins is saying Christianity is? Yes, he's saying it a, 
elaborate set of beliefs that yeah. are not supported by evidence and fly in the face of yeah. of reality. Yeah. Now, for some people, might you be right? That for some people, that's exactly what it is. Uh, that they've taken it on board, they haven't thought it through, they, didn't, they couldn't give any particularly good reasons for it. Maybe it is for them a delusion. Depends what religion. What you mean by religion? I mean, if if there is a god and you believe in God, then no matter what the kind of psychological mechanism for your belief, I guess that belief is valid. Um, right. Hmm. But delusion is different from illusion, isn't it? I guess. In illusion is seeing something that isn't there, or believing in something that isn't there. Or is that? There's lots of technical. Freud talks about religion as an, as, as an illusion, right. and he has a kind of technical view of what that means, which is a kind of holding a view that isn't true while the jury is still out, as it were, a kind of view that you hold, an as-if view, um, when the evidence hasn't been gathered. So he believed, mm. Freud, for instance, believes that childhood religion is a kind of illusion but it needs to then be laid aside as you grow into adulthood. And if it doesn't, it then forms something that's more delusional because it's actually contradicting actively the evidence. So illusions become delusions when they become more conscious and... Yeah, and when, 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 conscious when, when, you, when there is evidence to be weighed and okay. you don't take account right. of it. Yeah. That would be Freud's idea. Otherwise, so illusions are kind of distortions of okay. reality. So delusion is kind of believing something in spite of the evidence. Yes. And illusion is believing something without any... In Freud's view, otherwise okay, right. yep. illusions might be more something like distorting okay. the evidence. So yeah. Dawkins is saying delusion in the sense that he thinks there's a lot of evidence against Christianity, but people carry on believing it yes. blindly. Yes. Um, anyway, is that right? Yeah. 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 So, I mean, as I guess as we, we were saying, I mean, that's... that's um, what, what's, the, what's the problem with that view? Because as I say, for a lot of people... It does seem that, you know, we said how, you know, there are Christians who believe blindly in that kind of way. There are um, atheists who atheists believe, equally, who believe blindly. equally blindly, and, and Dawkins may be one of them. But, <laughs> um, but I mean, how would you critique that view of, 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 of Christian faith? Because there is a sense in which when we do believe in, in God, we do go beyond the available evidence in the sense that, well, not the available evidence, because there is evidence for God, but beyond the provable evidence, beyond the, yeah. the kind of cast iron, this is something I can be absolutely 100% sure of. Yes. So um, that, that's, I mean, that's the nature of faith. Yeah. I mean, I th for some of it rests on what you, how you understand religion, what you think mm. that phenomenon is. And Dawkins is very much talking about beliefs, intellectual beliefs. So if the evidence shows, seems to suggest strongly that there is no God, but you carry on asserting that there is a God, then that's a kind of mm. deluded belief. Mm. But that asserting there is a God actually is a very impoverished view of what we understand mm. religion mm. and faith to mean mm. there's an awful lot more to it. And one of the areas that we don't have time to touch on at great length in the book, but that we, that we do touch on briefly, is um, the notion of, of, of multiple modes of cognitive processing. So that there, there's um, one of the things we talk about is propositional cognitive processing, which is where um, the human being, the brain, um, is able to understand information very clearly, very explicitly, and is stated in propositional terms like birds have wings, there is a god. Mm. Um, but 
human function actually is also underpinned by other sorts of cognitive processing, which are much more subtle and intuitive, um, hard to put into words and touched by emotion. And it seems that a lot of what we do when we are doing religious cognitive processing is at this other level. It's not at the level where we say what we believe in very clear propositional mm. terms, but it's about um, feelings, relationships, um, a kind of lower level of consciousness, of, of, of slightly subconscious processing where we're dealing with intuition. Mm. And the, the, what Dawkins is often pointing the finger at is when religious people try and put into propositional language, into words, the processing that's going on at this other level. Mm. Um, but the level of evidence that you use at this other, in this, when you're in this other mm. mode of processing is a different kind of evidence. Mm. And so they're kind of, there's kind of people talking past each other in, in that debate, that there's the kind of explicit theological statements which he says are delusional, whereas what's going on in religious belief is yeah. much, much more. Yeah. That's, that's I mean, that's a very complicated account. Yeah, no, but that's, that's helpful. I mean, I, I remember talking to a friend of mine who was a, um, he was a nuclear physicist by background and, and um, taught physics in, 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 in Oxford University, and uh, he was a Christian. And I remember asking him, you know, do you know many Christians who are physicists? And he said, of course, of course, yeah, I know loads of Christians who are physicists. I know loads of atheists who are physicists. Um, and I said, what, what, <coughs> what makes the difference? I mean, you know, what, what's the real turning point for, you know, that makes one physicist a Christian and one physicist an, an atheist? And, you know, is it that they you know, read physics in a, in a different way? And his answer was, um, well, actually, no, it's not that, actually. It's, it's something much deeper than that. It's a much more intuitive thing. It's something that is driven much more by um, personal choices and decisions and events and emotions and, and things that have happened to them in, in, in their past, rather than something that is driven by their, their physics, as it were, um, which I guess ties in with what you're saying, that our, our, our choices about, about God and how we live our lives actually of, often operate at a much deeper level than that. Now, that isn't to say they are irrational, um, because one has to sort of think that through, but it ties in with the kind of old definition of faith is, or of, of, of um, theology and intellectual inquiry into Christian faith as faith-seeking understanding. In other yes. words, the faith begins, yes. faith is the first thing, and then you, then it seeks understanding rather than the other way around. Sort of head and heart kind of Something thing. like that. But, yeah. but I, I think, I, I guess Dawkins would say, well, that's all very well. Um, of course, all sorts of things shape what one believes at every sort of level, be you a Christian or atheist or Hindu or whatever. Um, but nevertheless, we have to engage at a particular level. We have to engage at, at uh, the evidential, rational level because that's, you've got to filter the other ones out up to a point when you're having that kind of debate. Otherwise, you didn't get anywhere. If you say, well, you know, I had these experiences that make me believe this and you've got the, your experiences that make you believe that, uh, you don't get anywhere in the debate. Uh, and I suppose what... When Graham said, um, you know, it goes, we have lots of people have beliefs that go beyond uh, what you can prove, and you said, well, that's the nature of faith. I can imagine Dawkins at that point would jump on you and say, <laughs> that's the problem. Uh, you go way beyond what can be uh, rationally defended. Um, so I suppose I'm slightly unhappy with the idea of faith as being that which goes beyond the evidence, really. No, no, it's the type of evidence, I ah, think. Okay. It's the nature of the evidence. That if the evidence is based on um, 
an intuitive understanding as well as a propositional understanding. The, 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 the way that you explore it, um, the criteria you set for what counts as evidence about how you might investigate it have to be kind of broader than what Dawkins is talking about. So it's not that there is no evidence, but that mm. the nature of the evidence requires something more sophisticated, I think, than he's trying to offer. And the reason I raise it is because one of the things that <coughs> seems to perplex him is why people continue to hold views that seem to be irrational. Uh, and I think the answer is that the evidence that they're using for those views is not the type of evidence that he... That the views themselves often are a summary of something that is much more complex for which the evidence is at another level. I, I agree, though. I, I don't think I want to give the field to him at the kind of rational level that he's um, operating. I think I want to say that even on his own playing field, uh, the case for um, believing God is, is, is the most satisfactory explanation of a lot of the factors and features of our lives, like uh, meaning, significance, value, purpose, morality, uh, that it, provide, it undergirds a lot of what is truly human in a way that an atheist view struggles with. So it's the best account that we yeah. have. Yes. Yeah. But yeah. My, my and that's one of the things we say. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. But I guess my point is that even that stops short of certainty. It's yes. the sort of best account we have, or we believe it's the best account we have, and um, we'd want to argue that. Yeah. Um, but in the same way that, that a, a, a belief that um, science can explain everything that is in the world, it can give a perfectly satisfactory ex explanation of religious experience and life and, 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 and belief. The kind of utter confidence in science that Dawkins has seems to me also goes beyond the evidence in one sense. Yes. In, in that, in that exactly. a lot of the things that really matter about life... Um, you can't prove. You can't prove. And you have to, that's why you kind of have to exercise faith in them. And that's the same, the same about whether God exists or whether God doesn't exist, whether you know, I can trust this person or whether I can't trust that person, whether democracy is better than aristocracy, all these kind of you know, questions one might um, think about. And, but it's not just that you can't prove them. And I think part of the problem here is that you know, we kind of think that unless we can prove it, then we have to kind of hold back and then not commit ourselves to it. Mm -hmm. But it strikes me that the nature of human life is that there's a whole lot of things that we can't prove, but we have to commit ourselves to. Absolutely. When you get married to someone you have to commit yourself to that person not knowing what the future will hold um when you think well there might be a god there might not be but you have got to have to go one way am i going to live as if there is a god or am i going to live as if there isn't one and, that's william um, james's argument in the will to believe that, that you can't sit on the fence you know i mean it was other people's arguments yeah, yeah. too but the nature of belief is that you have to yeah. you have to jump because all the important the really important issues that we grapple with are ones that do go beyond mathematical proof. Yes. Yeah. And even sure. mathematical proof, I gather, you know, you can only come to a conclusion if you make a particular assumption. Yeah. Yes. Um, so even there, so you it may can't be, prove it completely. It may be making a distinction between proof and evidence yes. might help. Yes. In that there is good evidence for, good reason for believing in, yes. in God and Jesus Christ and, and in, for, for Christian faith that stops short of proof. Um, are you happy with that, Mike? Yep, 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 yeah, I go along sure? with that, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> and Paul says, I know whom I have believed. He doesn't yeah, yeah. say, I know what I believe. Yeah, I yeah. Think that's a kind of crucial distinction yeah. about the nature of the knowledge and the nature of the evidence that's required. Yeah, sure, yeah, yeah. Uh, what about the, um, 
I mean, one one of the other ideas that Dawkins has is this idea of the way in which religious faith spreads itself, and he has this idea of memes, which, as far as I understand it, is 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 the idea of um, uh, religious ideas as a kind of virus that that spreads, um, which is. I guess partly a biological argument, maybe partly a psychological one as well. What do you what do you make of that? And I don't make I don't make much of it um, because I think it's memes are not something that in kind of mainstream anthropology or social psychology are mm. given any credence. They're a kind of and he has this little chapter or section in his book called "Tread Softly Because You Tread on My Memes," which is kind of <laughs> clever, but it it's just good, you know it? to a psychologist <laughs> reading that it just gives everything away. They yeah. are his little babies right. who are precious to him. Um, okay. But I don't really know what intellectual substance they've got. They mm. don't explain anything better than any other concepts that, that you might want to invoke to look at the cultural transmission of ideas. Yeah. His agenda for bringing them in is that they are pseudo-biological and he, what he wants is to have an explanation of everything in the world that is at the biological yeah. evolutionary level. He's not comfortable really. I mean, he will use psychology and sociology and anthropology to further his arguments, but he doesn't want them to be central to his arguments because he has a view mm. that it has to be biologically driven and memes have a biological feel to them mm. in the way that other models of cultural transmission don't. Yeah, okay. Do you have any thoughts on that one, Mike? Well, it's simply, it also gives them a bad name. I mean, you know, it's a form of communication, but by calling it virus or whatever, it, it makes it sound bad yeah, and destructive right. and damaging mm. and mm. unhealthy, which is, of course, what he wants yeah. to convey. Although uh, I think he thinks some memes are good. A lot of it, a lot of it, he talks, yes. there's a meme of creativity and, 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 yeah. and passing on skill. He has this idea of a sure. meme of being a, Carpenter, I think it is, that you right. pass from father to son. Yes, yeah, so I was thinking more of the virus term that he yes, also which uses. Yes, he stopped using that. He has, okay, yeah. okay, that's helpful. I, mean, I suppose that's, that's right, and the, because um, it, it's, it's an interesting idea as to how ideas are transmitted culturally and, and, and from one person or to another or one culture to another, but it doesn't really tell you an awful lot about how good those ideas are. No. Um, and as you say, you can use pejorative language about one set of ideas and yes. and say, well, that, they're, they're, they're bad, but another set of ideas... Um, it just doesn't doesn't really get you very far, it seems to me, in terms of what of, of describing religious faith, religious ideas, as opposed to irreligious ideas. Um, of course, one of one of his things is you know look what Chris, Christians have done. If you believe this, this is how you end up behaving, kind of thing. Well, of course, you could say that if you believe that God is a delusion and belief in God is a delusion, um, then down that route lies the kind of forced treatment. Mm -hmm. uh, and he wouldn't rec recommend that or advocate that, but people believing what he believes have ended up in that position mm. it's it's mm. at least a, a symmetrical mm. argument with what he thinks that christians are doing you know if you believe in god then you'll end up uh, behaving badly causing wars all the rest of it um yeah but, but his his view is just in equal danger down down the same track it sure. seems to me yeah yeah I mean, th there are people who, who see um, the Richard Dawkins approach is one of the great threats to Christian faith in in this country and and in uh, sort of Western civilization. Would, would you agree with that? Do you think it's a huge threat to faith? No, <laughs> just no. <laughs> Why and is I that? think well, I, one of the things that we found writing this book was it wasn't much fun because it was too easy to do because the arguments are so weak. What Dawkins mm. does, I mean, I'm not criticizing Dawkins across the board. He's written some really good stuff, but. Um, 
in this particular book, The Arguments of Week. But what he is good at is he's, he's a good writer. So he does mm. draw, which is why, coming back to the original question, there is an issue about being drawn into the book because mm. he tells a good story and he's funny. And um, in that sense, uh, there's a certain attraction. But the actual substance, there is no threat to Christian belief at all. Mm. I, I see, in terms of writing style, he um, got his wife to read the book to him uh, <clears throat> and uh, said so advocates that as a as a good tool for writing good books. Do you, you and Alistair read it? Get you know, read the, the other's books to each other ever? No, we don't. No, we don't. We go away and read them, and then we offer gentle criticism right. to each other. Okay. <laughs> Sometimes Carefully. not so gentle. <laughs> gentle the better. <laughs> Well, that's very good. The um, the book, just to remind you, is called um, The Dawkins Delusion. Question mark. Question mark. Atheist Fundamentalism and the Denial of the Divine. It's um, out in February from SBCK. Do you know how much it costs? £7 something, I think. £7 something. Probably £7.99, I would guess. So uh, do snip. buy that along with um, The God Delusion and um, hope you enjoy it. We've got one more question to, uh, to look at uh, today while Joanna's here. And it rather follows on, actually, doesn't it? it does when we talk about cultural transmission of ideas and it does. That's right. And this is um, it's a question really from from someone um, who has asked about uh, generational sin. Um, they talk about how in their own family, the, uh, their um, grandfather is a Freemason, and I've heard various opinions on the church on this, and uh, whether some kind of spiritual bondage can go from one generation to another or generational sin being handed on from one generation to another um, and uh, that whole idea. Uh, so can uh, if you like, the sins of the fathers or some kind of spiritual hold on a family be transmitted from one generation to another? Uh, can the present day generation be affected by things that have happened in the lives of their um, fathers and grandfathers and grandmothers and mothers and, and all like that? Uh, kind of thing, and I suppose there's a there's a theological, spiritual, and perhaps a psychological uh, aspect to this question as well. So, um, so Joanna, what do you think? Well, I'll answer it psychologically. Um, it's certainly true that patterns of relating get passed down from through generations um, within families. I think mainly through learning um, that people observe ways of interacting and then they pass that on to their own children and their own children pass them on. Not in a very um, obvious kind of replication of what went on before. I mean, if you think about how when you were a child, you might have sworn to yourself as I did, I will never do this to my children. <laughs> and so you end up doing the opposite. So mm. I had to sit at the table until all my food was uh, cold on my plate and still some. And so I've always been very liberal with my children about what they eat. It may be that they will then go back with their children to be more <laughs> conservative. <laughs> that, that sometimes the swings can, the, the, the influences can be quite quite subtle. But there are, you know, at more extreme ends, that they're kind of family cultures about um, keeping family secrets, not spilling the beans mm. about things, patterns of interacting. Um, and, 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 and the most extreme thing, kind of abuse. We know that if... if um, people who are physical and sexual abusers of others are more likely to have been mm. physically and sexually abused themselves. So that doesn't mean that everyone who is physically and sexually abused mm. automatically turns into an abuser. So one learns things that one passes on down the generations. Yeah, yeah. yeah thank you. It's part, I mean, of, of course one can impact other people. That is what it is to be a significant 
being, isn't it? That you, not, not just that you can make freedom, free decisions about yourself and your own life, but, but those decisions impact for good and for ill uh, on, for, on other people. And that happens both with our contemporaries and to a lesser extent um, on the people we influence, influencing other people and, and, and so on. So I think that that's just a, a, a facet of being a significant human being mm. that we can impact um, and that that happens both geographically and up to a point chronologically. Mm. Yeah, I, I suppose two thoughts strike me on this one. Um, one is just related a bit to what you were saying, Joanna, this idea that... Um, in a sense, we're not born into this world with a clean slate. Uh, you know, sometimes we have this, this is a kind of Rousseau, um, noble savage idea that, you know, we are sort of born free and everyone, mm. everywhere, everywhere we're found in chains. We're actually, it's, I think it's probably the other way around. In other words, we are, we are born into families, we're born into patterns of behavior, we're born into cultures where, um, in a sense, a lot is, is not determined, but sort of shaped for us, you know, even from the very, very, very beginning. Um, and I think that's something to do with, with, with what, the doctrine of original sin is about and it seems to me that the whole idea of original sin is that we are affected by the past um that mm. we are not just born with a clean slate free to do whatever we we choose that actually in some way psychologically spiritually however you understand it um we are affected by all kinds of other things around us by the past by our environment by uh, all of that that too. So there's that that sense. In that sense, I think I'd give a slightly positive answer. Yes, yes, we are affected by um, the sins of uh, of our parents, going right the way back to some original um, sin uh, that that uh, theologians have talked about over the years. Um, but I think there's another another aspect to it, which is um, I mean, a passage I think I, I'd, I'd find quite interesting in this regard is Ezekiel 18, where um, it seems to be talking about the the new covenant um, that is coming, and Ezekiel talks about that that quite a bit. And, and in that chapter, there seems to be there's quite a strong point made that there is a, there is a break between generations. Um, and it, 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 the um, the writer depicts this family of three generations, and the, the first um, person, the great grandfather, or the grandfather, as it were, is um, is a good person, a righteous man who does what is just and right, and then his son. Uh, is violent, who sheds blood or uh, eats at the mountain shrines, defiles his neighbor's wife and oppresses the poor and the needy, commits robbery and everything else. But apart from that, it's quite nice. Apart from that, he's a nice guy. Yep. Um, <laughs> and then uh, the next one, the, 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 the grandson, as it were, is, is a good person. Um, uh, suppose this son has a son who sees all the, son, the sins his father commits, and though he sees them, he does not do such things, and so on. And uh, the answer given you know, shall the son suffer for the sins of the father? And the answer is a very definite no. And you get, um, uh, this is again Ezekiel 18, um, verse 20, the soul who sins is the one who will die. The child will not share the guilt of the parent, nor will the parent share the guilt of the child. And um, so that, that seems to introduce quite a strong break in the new covenant between um, the sins of the father and the sins of the son. So it does mean that that, I think on the basis of that, you know, we, I don't want to say that we, we you know, we, we're not um, determined. Um, we're not sort of bound by the things our, our, our parents have done. There is, a, there is a break in that. God treats us in this sense, yes, as part of a kind of wider network of individuals and, and society, but he also treats us as individuals, uh, as people yes. on our own who are not um, bound and shackled by the past. That would suggest 
that were influenced but not determined by yeah exactly um, that's right these influences upon us which is probably our experience isn't it yeah. we're not completely at the mercy of sure uh, the patterns that we've yeah. witnessed observed inherited and grown up with uh, we can make decisions of our own yeah sure uh, for which we're responsible and just as i think you know i believe in the doctrine of original sin that we're influenced by uh, hugely influenced by um these you know the, 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 the mm. momentum of, of evil that's gone before us but i don't believe in original guilt absolutely uh, that mm. you know i am guilty because adam, adam yes. sinned mm. um and it's same really here isn't it I think that's i'm really influenced by the sins of my parents and, and my grandparents and my great great grandparents mm. but mm. i'm not guilty for those sins i'm yes. only guilty mm. for my own reaction to them mm. and mm. I, which is not a determined reaction yeah yeah i guess but behind this question comes you know what do we think about the practice of Maybe he's sort of praying over or talking through the sins that have, or the, the patterns of behavior that have <coughs> happened in previous generations. Um, the classic example here is given, you know, what if my father or my grandfather was a Freemason or was, um, you know, perhaps someone might say, well, my, there's this sort of occult worship in my background, not that I've experienced it, but that my you know, father or grandfather did or whatever. Um, what, what do we think about that? Is there a value in that kind of um, exercise? I think that distinction, you, you can't put it too strongly, that distinction between sin and guilt. Mm. That pastorally, it may be very important to explore things from the past that may be influential and have been passed on in family patterns. Um, but to imply somehow that is dealing with guilt, I think is, is mm. mistaken. And I also think sometimes it may be unwise to do it because you may have something you need to deal with in your life and you're mm. actually attributing yeah. blame to some earlier generation. Sure. So yeah. you need some discernment yeah. there. Yes, that's very helpful because it is quite easy to avoid a sense of personal responsibility for saying, well, it's all my, it's all my dad's fault or my mum's fault. Cause of what yeah, you did. see that in psychoanalysis, you know, it's a yeah. kind of secular analogy to the... Sure. Yeah. Yes. There's also the, the thing in one piece about being redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors. Um, I think there is a sense in which we we are, of course, given a new family mm. uh, by the cross, by uh, our inclusion in in the Christian Church, by our baptism, um, and that that gives us a different, hopefully or should yes. ideally, yes. give us a different pattern of behaving um, than mm. the ones that we've inherited generationally. Very good. Thank you very much indeed. So I think we've got to the end of God Pod number 20. We're going to have a 21st birthday party. That's a very good idea, isn't it? Well, I think we have champagne, champagne, champagne instead, of instead of coffee. Yeah. With, with the I'm obvious sure way. The conversation would flow. It probably <laughs> would. I'm not quite sure what we'd come out with it. Wouldn't really help the listeners much, would it? The fact that we were just drinking champagne here. But it would have to be carefully edited, I think. Very much so. Anyway, Joanna, thank you very much okay, for joining nice us. Nice to be here. It's been wonderful to have you. Joanna's going to be um, doing some teaching for us at the St. Paul's Theological Centre mm -hmm. at uh, some point in the future. Um, are you working on any other books and things like that at the moment? Projects? Yeah, well, I've, as you know, I've just finished one with Jeremy Duff, which was out in the mm. autumn on Jesus. One of my former students. Aha. Uh -huh. Yes, taught him everything he knows. Did you? Gosh. It didn't take long. <laughs> <laughs> And Alistair and I have a book on natural theology coming out later in the year. And I've got a book on ethics coming out later in the year, too. Goodness so me. I've done a lot of this very last couple of years. That's yeah. very impressive. Excellent. That's very good. Well, um, okay. Well, thank you, Mike. It's a pleasure. 
good and again thank you Joanna and uh, we will see you sometime um, in Godpod 21 in a few weeks time that was Godpod a podcast from the St Paul's Theological Centre if you want to send us a question just email it to godpod at htb.org.uk we can't promise to answer all the questions you send in but we'll certainly try until next time goodbye